Hello, and welcome to another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of christiangospelchurch.org. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, we're recording this straight through. We're splitting it up so people who were here last week, they, they see this as a separate episode. But my voice is getting incredibly hoarse, if you can't already tell. And so I am an advertisement for the Luden's Wild Cherry Cough Drops. <laughs> a friend of mine who was, um, <clears throat> he, he went to Hollywood and he earned some limited fame as a movie star and he got me onto this. He, he showed me that you can take these things and it makes your voice last even longer. But we've gone so long at this point, my voice is <laughs> it's getting almost gone. <clears throat> but we want to answer the questions that people have sent in. We Again, we can't get to every question, but we, as you can tell, are trying very hard to get through the most important ones. And this is our third episode in a series of questions and answers that we're giving. Those are good cough drops, John. Yeah, I really like that brand myself. Uh, so, uh, yeah, here we go into hour three of questions. Uh, we'll see if this hour fixes finishes up or not. We've got so many questions. I mean, we could go all day. But uh, so the 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 next question on the agenda is, um, why are you guys doing all this, John? Why are you making these podcasts? Why are you making these videos? Why are you exposing all of these things about William Branham, especially when you could be exposing the Catholic? <laughs> <laughs> I said, um, I can't remember now if it was the first series of questions or the second, that we got a slew of personal questions. We Often what happens is people will, if they come in contact with something that makes them uncomfortable, one of the first questions that they ask is, what do you believe now? What church do you go to now? And it's always trying to shift the focus from the people away from the subject matter to my person. And I just, I've learned over time, Charles, it's just, it's a game I don't play because it doesn't matter. You know, I could be, who knows what I could be, the biggest hypocrite in the world if the information and the research itself is 100% undeniably proving the fact that this was a false movement, which it was, it doesn't matter me. It doesn't matter my person. I, I could be whatever, you know, I could be Roman Catholic, which I'm not. And <laughs> interestingly, many of those people, they follow up with a second question, is the Catholic church paying for you? <laughs> it's just, it's so funny. I mean, if people had any idea the, the amount of time and energy I focus into trying to help people, they, they would never ask this question, but I did allow this one. This is a personal, this is a question of personal attack, but I did allow this one because this is important to me. And I, I feel like it's something that we should address. Why are we doing this? Why do I continue? I would rather be doing something else, Charles. I, <laughs> baseball, or I like boating. I like fishing. I like 
my musical instrument. There's so many things that I would rather be doing than this. But if we don't do this, Charles, who else was in a position like you and me that could even do this, right? There are people who left the message and, you know, I'm not I'm not discrediting any of that. There are people who left the message and they're actually more powerful in helping people out of the cult than anything that I do because their focus is to help people out of the cult. My focus has never been that. <clears throat> My focus is to document what happened because I'm one of the few who knows the inside story. My family was at the top of this. I want to document what happened and I want it to be a beacon to the world that says there is danger in this water. Do not swim. You know, the majority of people who were in my position, because I'm not the only one who was at the top of this, the majority left quietly, they let it go. They knew that if they were to be outspoken, they would get bullied, which we mentioned it in the finale episode. Instantly, I was bullied. (laughs) Instantly. My uncle spread around the world Almost the it was either the third day or second day that I'd left the message. As soon as he found out, I had an uncle that was very high ranking in this cult that spread that I was homosexual because homosexuality in this cult is a (laughs) it's a mark. You're marked and people won't listen to you. And it was highly effective. There were people that, you know, whether they believed it or not, I was marked and none of it was true. But the family heavily pressured me. I also mentioned in the finale that after we started attending a new church, we men who were the henchmen of the cult used to come to that church every Sunday, and they would just watch us walk in the building. And it was harmless, right? They're just watching us, but that was pressure. They were trying to intimidate us. That's what it was. It was an intimidation strategy. So when people ask me, why do you do this? Well, the why is easy. I do it to document what I feel like I can document, and a lot of people can't because I know it. Why not attack the Catholic Church? (laughs) I don't know the Catholic Church. I was never in it. The Catholic Church, as you know, as research indicates, the Catholic Church has a lot of skeletons in their closet. There are a lot of things that they have done that— is not only questionable, but some of it is purely evil. But if you read through the archives of the Catholic Church, you're going to find where they have documented their own history. And to a large extent, the Catholic Church has actually reformed. This cult erases their history. (laughs) So for the Catholic Church, I don't need to document it. You can easily, you can go on Wikipedia and you can find the Catholic Church and you can find its critical history. This cult, until I began my research, Charles, you you know this as well as me because you researched. Even on Wikipedia, everything was whitewashed initially. There was not a single critical there were some critical things, but there was not a single critical research of William Branham and the healing revivals and the message that was prominent enough to gain attention. There was there was a lot out there, but it was all just kind of sliding through the cracks because there wasn't anybody who was in a position such as me who was at, with the people at the top to know. So why do I do this? I do this because 
who else? <laughs> I think that's a good answer, John. And, you know, for me, uh, why I do it, I mean, I care about the people in the message. I love the people in the message. They're my people, right? I mean, that's... And, and here I am, John. I'm over the halfway point of my life. I am set in my ways. I mean, I'm content with my lifestyle. I'm probably never going to change as far as <laughs> any of that stuff goes. You know, and I, I'm... As far as the message lifestyle, I mean, I, I I lived the message lifestyle better than almost any other message believer I knew. A lot of them, a bunch of hypocrites, but I still live the message lifestyle better than a lot of them do. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I love the people in the message, and I want to help the people in the message. I, I left the message um, not because of any problems that I had along that way. I left the message when I found out they were lying to us about the midnight cry and the shout and the thunders and the seals opening. I, I found out they that was all a hoax, and they was lying to us about it. That That is really what made me quit believing the message. And, um, you know, when people like me and you, John, leave, right, I mean... I was content to go away very quietly, and that's what I did for, for over a year. I just left quietly. And and maybe all of you uh, message leaders who are listening to this, you can take down some notes here. It might help you when other people leave. Um, you know, if they had just left me alone, I would have went away quietly. That was entirely my plan, right? Because that's, that's the trade, right? You let me go quietly, I'll go quietly. You don't let me go quietly, I'm not going to be quiet. <laughs> so, so, I mean, if you, if I have to live with, with, with months and years of harassment, well, God have mercy. It, it, I might as well just go ahead and start telling the truth about you people. And so that's exactly why I have done it. They haven't left me alone. So, you know, I'll just, I mean, what's the point? I, I feel like I have some obligation to tell the truth. And the only incentive not to is the fact that you might be able to live in peace without them harassing you constantly. But if they're going to harass me constantly. I might as well tell the truth about them. <laughs> right. And so that's that's really my it's a very simple logic in my head. So that that's why I that's part of why I did all this, because they they want to they're not going to let me live in peace. Well, fine. I might as well just tell the truth about them. So so there's that aspect of it. And then I love those people. Those are my yeah. people. I'm I those are the people I want to help. And they already know how bad the Catholics are. <laughs> I don't need to tell them about that. <laughs> <laughs> But but they don't know about their own problems, so I, I'm telling them the things that they they need to know. And if and if they don't want to listen, that's okay. I I still love them anyway, and they're they're fine people, some of them. But but then the the but the ones who care, you know, that to check it out. Well, here it is. Here it is for you. So why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I love the people in the message. They are my friends. They are my family. They are my only friends. They are my only family. <laughs> so who else am I going to help if it's not the people that I care and love about? Right? I mean, yeah. so. So, so there you go. That that'd be why I'm doing these things. Yeah, and you know, <clears throat> you mentioned that had they not bullied you, you probably would have went away silently. <clears throat> For me, this was a roller coaster. When I left this thing, it was an absolute <laughs> roller coaster of ups and downs, and it's honestly, it was so traumatic for me. My memory has blocked a lot of it, so it's real hard to remember every single <laughs> hill and valley in the roller coaster, but <clears throat> I will say that I do share that. Had they not bullied me, I probably would have just walked away. I did disagree with some things. I had some questions, and I, at its surface... For me, the biggest problem was he was just—he simply wasn't a prophet, and they're claiming that he was. But prophets of God don't have failed prophecy, and I had some questions about that. 
Well, they tried to suppress it for me. They tried to not just suppress me, but they wanted to suppress this knowledge to the whole general cult. And they, when they attacked me in the way that they did, it made me realize that something was wrong. And that's what sparked it, sparked me into <laughs> this research and digging. I wanted, I, I have to know what's wrong. I have to know well, what are they hiding? Uh, I'm curious why if they're hiding something, why are they hiding it? <laughs> so I had to dig deeper and it morphed over time. Like you, I love the people in the cult. I wish every single person in it could be free, especially the children, man. It, it, even today, it breaks my heart to see children growing up in this because there's this period of time where ignorance is bliss. And as a child, you're happy and you know, nothing seems off or wrong, but Suddenly, as you turn into adult, you can watch the people, even visually. I don't know if you've noticed this after leaving, Charles, but you can see the rapid rate in which people appear to be getting older in the cult because they're so burdened down. It's just it's wearing them out and it's it breaks my heart. So there was a period of time <laughs> in which this happened and <clears throat> I'll, I'll go a bit deeper than I probably should, but also people tell me falsely that I'm this brave individual who has, um, you know, conquered the conquered mountains from being so brave. And I can assure you it wasn't that I, um, as I was going through all of this, I've mentioned it in various different places in our podcast, but I was going through some severely traumatic issues and severely problematic health issues. And I thought I was dying. <laughs> and so as I was, you know, leaving this cult and I was reconciling what had just happened to me, I thought, well, they're lying. The world needs to know. It needs to be documented in a way that in the future, after I die, anybody can find it. And if I'm going to die, I'm just going to go out with a bang. <laughs> and, then, and then I didn't die. I, you know, I don't know if it was because of, like I mentioned, people in the cult, they age a lot faster and more severely than people who were in normal Christianity that teaches the gospel. After I left, things just suddenly started getting better. And I don't know if that was just psychologically or there were some actual health issues that did get better. Um, medications that I was told I'd have to take the rest of my life that I don't take any longer. And after leaving the cult, it just simply got better. <laughs> and the pressure, the fear, the burden of fear that they place on you. It's, it's kind of like this next question that we're get, about to get into. The fear was a crippling fear. And <clears throat> there were things that were taught that just are so wrong and so weird and should not be even mentioned from a pulpit. Like this question, this person asks, didn't William Branham say somewhere that the American government was building prison camps in Alaska to put message believers in? Do you know if he said that? And if he did, could you please add it to the list of topics that you could talk about? That's a, a really interesting uh, statement of William Branham there. And yes, he did say on tape several times uh, that um, people were going to be put into basically a concentration camp type gulag in Alaska um, if they did not submit to the World Council of Churches. Um, and this is something that he said it a number of times. And the World Council of Churches was a 
a boogeyman that William Branham used. Um, basically, he set that up that that would be the image of the beast, and then every denomination that joined the World Council of Churches was going to be worshipping the image of the beast, which is like taking the mark of the beast, and, you know, you're going to burn up and go to hell, basically. So if you didn't submit to the World Council of Churches, you're going to uh, then, the alternative is they're going to send you to Alaska and put you in a gulag prison camp. And let me read you a quote of William Branham to this effect. This is from a 1962 sermon. Um, he says, he's telling a story here about someone that's going to end up in the gulag. He says, The father stood up and said, It's against our religious belief for our children to wear shorts. Our little girls, 16, 17 years old, to wear shorts. It's against our religious beliefs. And they dismissed it, and they expelled the child from school. And I understand that everybody that won't agree and come into the international agreement of this fellowship that they're trying to form to unite all the churches together, the Federation of Churches, that all that won't come in and unite with it, they'll make a little province. They're going to send them to Alaska. You might as well get ready for cold weather, because it sure looks like it's coming. So, so that's what William Branham said about uh, all the people who don't submit to the World Council of Churches going to Alaska. You find other quotes like that. But honestly, John, that is just a nutso conspiracy theory. Um I don't believe the World Council of Churches ever really had a plan to um, exile all of the people <laughs> who did not submit to them to a gulag in Alaska. I don't think that's true. No, it's not. <clears throat> and I, I've mentioned before, I think in the last series, but we're getting into, hopefully in the future, we're getting into some interesting history, American religious history, about the invasion of the communist scare and how it impacted the religion and through fundamentalism they 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 basically took all of these different world conspiracy theories embedded it into american christianity and then built entire mountains of doctrine on top of it and at its core it was just simply false <clears throat> so william branham said this now if you go to a message cult church today, it's highly unlikely you're going to hear it. Um, I'm certain that the person asking this <laughs> is probably as old as me or, or, or older because it's something that used to be taught. They have whitewashed a lot of their history. They, To some extent, they've tried to change it from an atmosphere of fear to a, I don't know what you'd call it. It's not the gospel. It's an atmosphere of burden. That's, that's how I'll call it. They changed it from an atmosphere of fear to, of hyper fear to an atmosphere of fear combined with burden. That's probably the easiest way to explain it. And my family, I have a family member who mentioned that every day as this person was getting ready to go to school, they would get on the bus, and as they were walking to the bus with their parents, they would turn and just grab onto the leg and cry and cry and cry. I mean, even to an age that it's embarrassing to be like this, because they were afraid that they would get on the bus and go to school when all of this would happen, and that their parents would be sent to the prison camps while they were in school, and they would never reunite with the parents. That's the level of fear that our parents, my parents, grew up with. That's, you know, the, the generation of people that I'm talking about are the age of my parents. 
So this is something that used to be widespread. You're not going to hear it much in the cult today because <laughs> they try to whitewash their history, as we've mentioned. But this is problematic. This is a gospel of fear, not a gospel of love. Yeah, you know, it, it's crazy how how this stuff has evolved over the years. And you're right. The talk about World Council of Churches being the image of the beast is something that I think gradually may have died out in a lot of places. I know in our churches it was still mentioned occasionally, uh, but I want to say after the 90s, as you come into the early 2000s, it seems like, at least where I come from, it is an idea that's kind of faded away. Even though I will say William Branham um, included that in his interpretation of the fifth seal. So that is actually, uh, <laughs> thus saith the Lord from the angel, uh, that the World Council of Churches is the image of the beast. So I, I don't think the message really can completely divorce itself from that idea without actually um, rejecting um, the revelation of the seals. So, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's just crazy conspiracy stuff. Um, I know they would always say, and William Branham said too, that the World Council of Churches was... A secretly communist in institution, which I think there might actually be some truth to it that they were influenced by communism, but um, but ultimately with him that means you know communism was controlled by the Jews, and then it's all part of the deal with making a deal with the Pope to everything else. Which all that is just bizarre nonsense. You know, there's there's maybe elements of truth there that they grab at um, and then pile on with the crazy conspiracy stuff. Something else. So. Moving on to the next question, John, it's where did William Branham get the idea of seven dimensions from? Seven dimensions. You know, I've thought long and hard about this question, Charles, <clears throat> and how best to answer it. I think William Branham went deep into prophecy and envisioned the future and saw the Doctor Strange Marvel movie of the Marvel multiverse. <laughs> <clears throat> no, this is so weird and out there. I mean, to a normal Christian who's never heard this from <laughs> behind a pulpit, they think, what and what on earth is this? This sounds like Eastern mysticism. And, uh, you know, my answer is simply that William Branham had a lot of different influences, many of which were not Christian influences. And <clears throat> whenever you study this out to its conclusion— and especially if you study the heresies that Irenaeus mentioned, <laughs> which ironically is one of William Branham's quote-unquote church-age messengers, you find that this is woven throughout Eastern mysticism, to some extent Jewish mysticism, Hinduism. Um, I think even Gnost there are various sects of Gnosticism that included this. This was not a Christian idea, but William Branham what whatever his source that he ripped this from <laughs> whatever the source he tried to change it into a christian doctrine and then introduce it into the church as christian theology when i can assure you charles this this is not christian theology right there there's certain things when william brown would talk about the seven dimensions that i do think give away its origins um when he talked about the sixth dimension he would talk about the sixth dimension as being filled with cosmic light, and the sixth dimension is where the um, dead saints live. Basically, the spirits of the saints live in the sixth dimension. And then he would say the seventh dimension is where God lived. And I think those two give us the strongest clue as to where this came from. And 
that is Hinduism. <laughs> that is actually the beliefs of Hinduism, that the sixth dimension is where the cosmic light is, and that that's where the spirits of dead saints or dead gurus to them live. Um, and then their gods live in the seventh dimension, the Hindu gods. So, um, now, did William Branham get that directly from Hinduism? I don't know if he did or not. Um, so the, some of those ideas from Hinduism, Eastern mysticism, were uh, imported into Quimbyism all the way back in the 1800s. So Phineas Quimby incorporated some of those ideas, which then got picked up by Mary Baker Eddy, which also then got imported into, you know, uh, mid and late century British Israelism, right? Which come into Christianity through that means. And so William Branham was in direct line of succession from British Israelite preachers who believed the same thing. So did he get it directly from Hinduism or did he get it from Hinduism via Bosworth, via Kenyon, via Mary Baker Eddy, via Phineas Quimby? You know, it, it's hard to be sure just which one it is, but to be certain, um, that is a Hindu idea. And let me, um, let me just read you a quote of William Branham talking about that. He says, this is from a 1962 sermon, The Countdown. He says, Now the sixth dimension is in Christ, the saints, dead saints, or resting saints, who's completely worked, finished on earth, and entered into rest with Christ under the altar beautifully. If you would parallel it like a wonderful dream that you didn't want to wake up, it ain't a dream, it's natural, it's real but just making a parable to you. And of course, the seventh dimension is God alone. So there's William Branham explaining, you know, what's in some of these dimensions. And so let me also read to you a couple articles. This is from a Hindu guru. And John, I work with some Indian people who are Hindus. And in, in leading up to this episode, I went and I asked them, like, hey, uh, what do you believe about the sixth and seventh dimension? Well, they believe the same thing William Branham said about it, <laughs> is what they believe about it. So I, I actually asked a, a, a Hindu about this before I recorded this episode. And here's what a guru says off of a Hindu website. He says, the superconscious plane of the sixth dimension is situated at the third eye of Arna Chakra. Today, the saints and the venerated sages uh, have lived fully and consciously in this rarefied mind strata. The beautiful, accentic body of light, cosmic light, a pure inner body exists in the sixth dimension. These, there were people who once lived in physical bodies and in the fourth dimension who now live totally in the sixth dimension. It is possible to live without a physical body in this dimension and still be fully conscious. Um, so there's, there's what a Hindu guru is saying about the sixth dimension. And then the seventh dimension, the same guru says, the seventh dimension is a silent world. It would be in be the heaven world of the gods themselves, their retreat place. All of this takes place within you, within the wonderful mind of man, your mind. So William Branham's teachings on seven dimensions is is modified Hinduism. <laughs> I would agree with that. <clears throat> I too, in the IT world, it's hard not to. I've worked with many Hindus and work with many Christians who knew the gospel. And I have to say that a large number of people in the message live quite sheltered lives, because if you're ever in an office environment where you have Hindus and you have actual Christians who actually know the gospel, it's really difficult to retain this false gospel religion, because 
<laughs> for example, one of the Hindus I met, and this this is going to sound funny, but this is actually true. In Hinduism, you have a selection of gods. You can you can have as many gods as you want. You choose which gods. And <clears throat> there was this one Hindu I met that one of the gods he chose was Christ, <laughs> which sounds odd, but that's that was his method of belief system. And he believed, you know, Krishna, or I can't remember the names of the different gods that he believed, but he also believed Christ. And I was like, so how does that work? Whenever the Bible says there's one true God, and he came up with this weird way to explain that basically says, yes, I believe the multiplicity of gods and, and also believe this, so I have cognitive dissonance. That's essentially what he had. <clears throat> but it was interesting talking to him because he knew his Bible better than most message ministers that have preached that I've listened to. They'll say things that are just clearly not in the Bible, and they'll say they are because they heard William Branham say them and heard William Branham say that it was in the Bible, and they didn't look themselves. And they've got one job, man, <laughs> read the Bible and preach it. But they're preaching William Branham instead. So this Hindu knew more about Christ and the Bible and the gospel than these men, even though He's in a false version of Christianity because he believed in a multiplicity of gods, which was weird. But then the Christians, they, the Christians that I've worked with, if you start talking about the halo and the lights, immediately they'll say, well, that's, man, that's demonic. That's if you study spiritualism, if you study Gnosticism, if you study, and they're going to the different religions, those who are knowledgeable, and they will pick apart fully everything without even talking theology they will pick apart the religion just based on its premise and the first time i had that happen i did not know how to answer because i'll be honest charles there what they said <laughs> was very correct this is like witchcraft man this is sorcery this is not christianity and so i agree with you i've, I've talked to the hindus i know that that is likely where he got it it's kind of common in Eastern mysticism, so there could be different flavors of what he got. But the way what what you found in you know according to that guru, it's it's identical almost down to down to the letter that it was Hinduism. The next question: <clears throat> Where did William Branham get the doctrine that the serpent was a walking and talking animal, but didn't have intelligence until he was taken over by the devil? How do we explain that this is a lie? So I, I think what you will find is you can find the roots of that in the teachings of John Nelson Darby. Um, so there was a writer uh, named Charles MacDonald who sort of uh, codified uh, John Darby's teachings in the generation after John Darby. Um, and he included that in his writings. You'll find um, pieces of that found its way into the Schofield Bible, for example. It's in the study notes of a Schofield Bible. Um, that the serpent, you know, was a creature that was basically taken over possession by Eve. So th those are ideas that influenced William Branham. We know he had, we, I know for sure he had both of those writings. I have pictures of Charles McDonald's books in his library. We know he had a Schofield Study Bible. So is, is that where he got it from? Most certainly is where he got the idea from. Yeah, this question for me is interesting because, <clears throat> and I could be wrong, I've I've not studied it as fully as, I, I will uh, in the future, but in white supremacy and Christian identity, 
they were trying to make this claim and they were pointing to a pre-atomic race that existed and the ideology and it differed from sect to sect but the ideology was such that the serpent was a part of that race that wasn't the race of the good guys and that's ultimately the white supremacists they ended up this is where black people came from ultimately the bible if you read genesis 3 it talks about the serpent being more crafty than any of the animals of the wild animals so the bible clearly talks about having intelligence before the fall it also talks about the serpent talking it's you know it's telling the woman we could eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden but you must not eat the fruit that's in the middle of the garden so parts of this question just simply some of it came from the bible but the deeper question is that transition from the intelligence i think is where the heart of this question is because part of this is just straight from the bible but that transfer of intelligence i do believe if i'm not mistaken it came from white supremacy because even William Branham, when he talks about when he first came in contact with the Christian identity doctrine at uh, Roy Davis's church, he talks about how the he was trying trying to say that he denied it initially, but it was making that claim that there wasn't an intelligent being, and that's why the black people are, <laughs> according to that white supremacy, very awful thing. That's why the black people are the way that they labeled them, but. In my opinion, it probably came from white supremacy. Yeah, John, while you were speaking, I went and I just pulled the book off of my shelf. Um, this is this is a copy of what's in William Branham's library. This is a commentary on Genesis. And I said it was Charles McDonald. I'm sorry, it was actually Charles McIntosh. This is basically a codification or a commentary of the teachings of the brethren, Darby's teachings that was produced after Darby died. And yeah, in here, he he basically spells out roughly what we would have believed about that sort of thing you know and you're correct john in saying that these actual ideas of pre-adamites um come from white supremacists absolutely so they were trying to find ways to justify slavery and they proposed the idea that there was a race of soulless animals that looked more or less like people who god made as animals to be servants to adam um and naturally they said that was the um, progenerators of the non-white races um, and yes then so it it's basically just piggybacking on those ideas that saying that Satan possessed one of those creatures and then seduced Eve um, and as far as do how do we how do we know that that's wrong well I mean do you believe that God created a race of sentient animals <laughs> that could talk and speak and were in every way just about like humans but they didn't have souls and were intended to be slaves yeah I, I don't think so I, <laughs> I don't think so so um I I don't believe God would do a thing like that and so now if, if you do well that's between you and God but I I just don't believe that God created a race of um, sentient feeling animals that are just about like people but were intended to be uh, slaves to the master race for all eternity. I just don't believe I don't believe in that. 
Can you explain about the four versions of William Branham's angelic commission story again? I would like to know more about the second version where he was in his living room. Um, how do you know that, that, that there is that second version? Um, and I believe this, this question came from someone who was trying to understand uh, back when we did the How the Angel Came to Me. We said there were four versions of the Angelic Commission, the 1945 version, the In My Room version, the um, In a Cave cabin version, and then the In a Cave version. So you got the four versions, <laughs> and they were wanting to understand um, why we thought the In My Room version was different from the cave or the cabin. Yeah, you can tell... This also is from somebody who was in the cult. <clears throat> we, we mentioned this in one of the previous questions, but if you have a person who makes a false claim and you suddenly realize it's false, if you're not brainwashed and manipulated, you're just going to leave and ignore every single thing that the person has said for, <laughs> forever because they just lied to you. But if you're in the cult and they make a false claim and you learn it's false and then they've got another claim, well, your mind immediately tries to say, well, let's ignore the false one. He made this other claim and it was true. And then you'll defend that claim until somebody can prove it's false. And then you say, well, no, he's got this other claim. Well, it's true. <laughs> and that's the way brainwashed individuals think. It's sad, but that's that's the way that they think. It's I've been trying to think how best to talk about this the simple answer is we got it from his recordings he talks about it himself on the transcripts <clears throat> you can go back to one of our previous podcast episodes and you can we actually on the video feed we actually show the text of it so you can see where he got it but the problem like I said, I'm addressing a different question than the one was asked because this is coming from a person who's probably going through that, trying to reconcile how they've been lied to. Well, Charles, if you were to commission me to build you a shelf for your living room and I come home and I tell my wife, I've been commissioned to build a shelf and I go in my garage and I start building it and then you call me again and you say, John, I'm commissioning you to build me a shelf for my living room. And I say, okay, I'm in the garage. I'm building it, Charles. <laughs> I'll build you the shelf. You call me again 10 minutes later. John, I am commissioning you to build a shelf for my living room. I'm going to finally, I'm going to start saying, Charles, look, man, I'm in the garage. I've got the wood on the saw. I'm cutting it. Let me build it. You'll be fine. And then you call me back 10 minutes later. John, I'm commissioning you to build a shelf for the living room. Well, that's what happens with William Branham. If you just go to table.branham.org, which is the cult headquarters transcripts, just type in the word commission. and You're going to see, I commission you to heal the sick. I commission you again to heal the sick. I commission you another time to heal the sick. I commission you another, another, another time. One of the best books that lays this out is Peter Dyser's Legend of the Fall. He <laughs> That's the first time I ever I actually never noticed it until he pointed it out. He's commissioned left and right. Here's a commission. Here's another commission. You get a commission. You get a commission too. <laughs> Reminds me of Oprah. You get a car. You get a car. Even in, somebody sent me one of the earliest pamphlets that William Branham, I think this is a 1945 pamphlet, 
William Branham is commissioned to heal the sick without even an angel. So and in this pamphlet, he talks about he is commissioned two times in the same pamphlet to heal the sick. One time, I think it's 1936, if I'm looking at the dates correctly in this book, 1936 was the earliest. Then again, 1945, and then if you look, they <laughs> they don't talk about this one in the cult, but if you look at the transcripts, there's another one, another one, there's angels, there's demons, there's all kinds of weird commissions. But the simple answer is, if you're looking for it, go to the transcripts, type in commission. Yeah, you know, if you want to check out Peter Dyser's book, it, it is really good, and you're right, John. I mean, there are, he documents the dozen different times William Branham, I think more than a dozen times that William Branham claimed <laughs> that he was commissioned and yeah and it, it is kind of bizarre like how many times does a man need to be commissioned you know is there it's, it's odd right it, it is odd and i i understand the question too you know about the four different versions because you know the 1945 version that's very clearly wrote in you know i was not disobedient to the heavenly vision the cabin version is very clearly documented like in his book a man sent from god and then the K version is William Branham extensively told that on tape. So all all three of those versions are very clear. And I think when we did the episode on this, we mentioned that the second version was the most obscure one, uh, just because there's the least on it. But the reason that we would suggest to you that it is a separate version is because there are details in that which cannot fit with, with either a cabin or a cave. Um, and also don't fit with the 1945 version. Um, and he also doesn't say he's in a cabin or a cave in, in that version. He says, uh, just, I'm in my room. And let me just read you one quote from, from one of the times he told this version. And these are the very first times he told this on tape, is this version. Um, and I'll just kind of point out a detail to you here. He says in a sermon, The Angel of God from 1947, he says, a little over two years ago, so notice that put it in 1945, right? <laughs> a little over two years ago, which is when the I was not disobedient to the heavenly right. vision tract came out. A little over two years ago, um, I was sitting in the room, right? I was reading the little Schofield Bible, and I heard something. You know, he just says, I was sitting in the room. He doesn't tell you where he's at um, other than he's sitting in a room. But he says, I heard something. First, I saw a light, and I thought it was an automobile that turned the corner. But it was not, but it turned, but it got brighter, and I looked out the door, and there was no automobile. Okay, now, if William Branham was in a cave, do you think he'd be opening a door to go look to see if an automobile turned the corner? <laughs> no. Okay, so it don't fit the cave one. And if you, if you put it, for example, with the cabin one, the cabin story, he's out in the middle of the wilderness, and he had to hike back there to get there. There's no street for a car to be turning a corner, right? So the details of these stories do not fit with cabin or cave, right? And it's this is like the hybrid where he's going from the 1945 version, because he's putting this in 1945, is the hybrid between that and the transition to the cabin version. And if you, the reason we would suggest to you this is his home on Ewing Lane is because if you know where his home on Ewing Lane is, it's right at a street corner where if a car turned the corner, the light would shine right through the windows in his home on Ewing Lane. So it really, the internal evidence in the story um, would suggest to us that he is in his room or in his home on Ewing Lane and a, a street turn, car turns the corner 
um, and shined a light through his window, and so this is what he thought it was. So I just hope you catch that. So that 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 is why we would say that second version is a distinct version that's neither cabin nor cave nor 1945. And at the end of the day, John, um, you know, if, if you don't want to, you know, if you want to merge that in with the cabin version, I mean, I think that's that's reasonable if you wanted to do that. But you still got three versions of the story. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and, and you still got an angel that told him things that are not true and misquoted the Bible and told him a false prophecy. So you, no matter what you do with that detail, the story fails on other points. And I, I would not hang the angelic commission being false simply on, on this one little detail of the second version. I would hang the, it being false on just the whole broad scope, right? You've got all of these different versions and you've got, an angel misquoting the Bible and an angel telling him he's going to go do things that he never actually did, right? Um, and then you've got these really dramatic changing versions over time. So for me, it's just a really huge, big red flag that there is something seriously wrong with the Angelic Commission story. For me, it's this simple. If somebody told you that it was a matter of life or death, that you go out to this road and turn right and go past a cave, and then... You confirm it with them and you say, okay, so I'm going out to the road and I'm turning right and I'm going out past the cave. And they says, no, I want you to go out and I want you to turn left and go by a cabin. And then you say, well, I just want to confirm this because you told me just a second ago to turn right. And you ask them a third time and they say, no, it's a matter of life or death that you come into my living room. Well, at some point, you have to believe that this is not a matter of life or death <laughs> because this person clearly has a problem and you would ignore everything that he said. But if you're brainwashed in this cult, Charles, you believe it is a matter of life or death and you believe all of these things. <laughs> so you're literally going to go left, right, living room, wherever you want to go. And <clears throat> it's like so many things in the message. There are... There are so many things that if you take the one thing that he said and then take another thing that he said and try to mix them together, they the details just can't go together. And so they're completely false. Just one more point, John, on this, which is a point I think we've probably made before. But, you know, if you take the original 1945 version in that I was not disobedient, he gets his commission, he goes and he heals Reverend Doherty's daughter. You take the the In My Room version for, that he tells in 1947, the angel comes to him in 1945 in that version, and then he goes to uh, St. Louis, he heals Reverend Doherty's daughter. When you come to the, uh, ca the cabin version, like in A Man Sent from God, the angel comes to him in 1946 in this version, and then he goes to St. Louis and heals Reverend Doherty's daughter. <laughs> or you go to the cave version, right, which is supposed to happen either 47 or 48, depending on the version. The angel comes to him in the cave, and then he goes to St. Louis and heals the Reverend Doherty's daughter. The detail that is consistent across all the versions, and he don't always tell the story end-to-end, -end, but when you get each version end-to-end, -end, he always goes at the end to St. Louis and he heals Reverend Doherty's daughter. Well, we know that actually did happen in 1945. She was healed of um, uh, St. Vitus Dance, which is a non-chronic condition which people generally spontaneously recover from anyway. He went and he, she was healed of St. Vitus Dance in 1945, according to all the evidence, right? The newspaper articles, the testimony of her father and other family that we've talked to as well. So he went there in 1945. And so that is ultimately the piece that points you back that that 
1945 version, I Was Not Disobedient, is the one closest to uh, the truth because that is at what actually did happen in 1945. Right. <clears throat> and I will mention that in this, <laughs> there is no angel. In this commission, there is no angel. So the angel was introduced after this this publication was printed. So the next question, and this is a question for you, Charles. I, I won't even attempt to answer it. <clears throat> you said that Raymond Jackson never had the pyramid dream, but he did have a dream. Can you explain that? Sure. So Raymond Jackson did have dreams. He had lots of dreams. Um, dreams featured very prominently in his ministry, um, and there's a number of dreams that he did tell to William Branham. Um, now, what what's important here is to just to notice what William Branham does with it. So Raymond Jackson, in, in this particular pyramid dream, I say that in ear quotes, pyramid dream, um, he dreamed that he saw William Branham with like a crowbar and he's like prying up a kind of a cavity in a, in a rock. And as he pries up the cavity, inside this cavity in the rock is all these gems and jewels and everybody oohs and ahs. And then William Branham walks away. And after William Branham kind of disappears over the horizon, all the people go crazy. Where did William Branham go? And so that's the gist of the, the dream. And it kind of ends with everybody going crazy looking for William Branham. But there is no, there's no pyramids. There is no, there is no symbolism in that at all that connected with what William Branham tried to do with it. Now, what happened is when William Branham preached the seven seals, he says, now I told you that the angels came to me in the constellation uh, formation, right? In the shape of a pyramid. And then he goes and he connects that to William Bra Raymond Jackson's dream. And he says, just like Junior Jackson's dream, right? Um, they came to me in the shape of the pyramid. And he was using that dream to try and say that this supernatural experience where the angels came to him in a shape of a pyramid is vindicated. But what happens is there's no angels in Raymond Jackson's dream. There's no pyramids. There's no constellations. There is nothing in Raymond Jackson's dream that he actually did have that matches the symbolism that William Branham is drawing on. William Branham totally made up the pyramid dream. There was no pyramid dream. In fact, there was no dream that Raymond Jackson had that matched the symbolism of William Branham at all, right? William Branham just totally fabricated the pyramid dream and attributed it to Raymond Jackson. Um, and Raymond Jackson's even on tape saying, I never had the pyramid dream. He had another dream about these gems in a cavity. Um, and when you when you see that, you realize well, there's no there's no matches in the symbolism here. It's just, you know, it just ceases to make sense. And then you have William Branham making up these really crazy stories. And that's not the only dream of, of Raymond Jackson that William Branham fabricate, fabricated and made up and then said he had it. Um, and, and Raymond Jackson covered that lie for him for years and years and years and decades till about 2002, Raymond Jackson, um, in a sermon, did tell us the truth about how William Branham had fabricated his dreams. <clears throat> All right, John, we've got one more question here. Um, question is, why did Willard Collins say people have known these things for years? <laughs> I've mentioned that a few times. Uh, in fact, I think it's in either two or three of my books. <clears throat> there was a point of time in which we talked about it in one of the previous questions in which I fully would have just walked away 
silently. I, I didn't care. These people can believe what they want, right? And then, as you know, the bullying starts and all of the different pressuring, the intimidation strategies. Well, there was a period of time that was very traumatic for me in which I suddenly realized that not a single person that I respected was trustworthy, but more to the point, they had all turned on me. My own grandfather, I, I respected my grandfather <laughs> up until, when was it? It was first or second week of January 2012. He was, he was probably the man that I looked up to the most. He was the head pastor of the Branham Tabernacle, had been for 50 years, I think it was. But the moment in which I mentioned that I had a question and even just, you know, I, I had not even I had not even fully discounted William Branham as a prophet. I just knew that he had some failed prophecies and I was twisted and manipulated to believe that you could be a prophet and also have failed prophecies, which is a problem. <clears throat> but there came a point of time in which they were trying to bully me. And Grandpa was going to send some henchmen to my house. I won't go into too many details. I'll just leave it like that. They were going to send some people out to my house. And he threatened me over the phone. And that was the point in which I said, look, Grandpa, I don't know why you're about to threaten me. And I probably said some things that I shouldn't have, but I was I was a little bit angry and upset because all of this was happening and I, I had no idea why it was happening. <clears throat> but I said, look, this thing, there's something wrong here. And I mentioned, I was, I had been studying the 1933 quote unquote seven prophecies of 33. And I was suddenly starting to realize there weren't just seven, there were more. And there were more because whenever one was proven to be a failure, it would shift into a different one. And I was trying to explain to him that something's wrong here. The ministers are saying things that aren't true. And I mentioned specifically to Grandpa, there are people, especially in this town, that are worshiping William Branham as a god. And I said, how can this thing even be of God if, you know, this prophecy that I'm looking at, and I think the one that I was specifically talking to that initiated the conversation was the female uh, president prophecy. I was saying William Branham said that it was fulfilled multiple times with the election of Kennedy, and as a grandpa, Kennedy's not even female. <laughs> and so he had to change it. And I said, for me, if you can change it that drastically, that it can change from a male to a female, that is the polar opposite. You can literally change any prophecy to mean anything that you want and say that you had a prophecy that's true. And I said, have you known this? And Grandpa said, people have known this for years. What does it hurt for you to believe it anyway? In other words, I would like for you to be silent. I would like for you to leave silently. And the irony in that, Charles, is that's really all I wanted to do, man. <laughs> I wanted to leave silently. <clears throat> but whenever they started coming down on me like this, it wasn't just Grandpa. I had multiple family members of rank and authority in the message from multiple states that began bullying me and my family. 
and they cut my wife and children off from the cult, had no idea whether my wife even believed it or not. They just said that she is doomed to hell like I was, and I knew something was wrong. So the reason why he said this was this was part of the bullying strategy. He was... They were literally going to send men out to my house, and I had to take some precautions. I won't go into details. I'll just leave it at that. But this was very, very problematic. The way they react to questions, I mean, if especially critical questions, if that does not demonstrate that this thing is a cult, I mean, I mean, I, it's something else, right? I mean, you, if if a question seems to like hit critically at the core of their beliefs, they they kind of lose it. And I think, John, to me, that actually speaks to the weakness of their own faith and their beliefs, right? They know it's weak, and they don't want to be questioned on it. And a lot of them know better, especially the ones up at the top that have been around a long time. They know that they know there's very serious problems, and they have at best a weak belief in the message to begin with. As I, I've said before, a lot of people in leadership in the message do not actually believe the message. They know this they they know this isn't true. Um, and just like you found out, they already knew the problems, right? Before we even asked about them. And <laughs> and they just want to try and bowl you over and shut you up, right? And it is really absolutely despicable. You know, I, I have like some of the people the same thing that have come down hard on me or like one of the men, I asked him, so William Brennan made all the stuff up about the cloud? He says, yeah, that's pretty much how it is. Boy, he came down on me like a ton of bricks for not believing the mess. He didn't even believe it. He's the one who told me it wasn't true. <laughs> you know, the same with the KKK stuff. It was the preacher who told me, one of the preachers who told me the KKK stuff was true, come down on me like a ton of bricks that it ain't true, but he's the one who told me it was true, right? And I could go <laughs> on and on, right? I, I, John, you're not the one who convinced me that this stuff is true. They did when they told it to me from their own lips. Yeah. Because they knew it was true before we even started looking into it. And they thought they would just bowl me over and I would, oh, okay, you all believe that, that this is all true and we're just all going to go along anyway. I don't think so. I mean, I have a conscience. I want to sleep at night, and I don't want to go to hell for lying to people for 50 years. And if you guys are comfortable with that, why, hey, go ahead with that. But, I mean, I know what the Bible says about liars in the lake of fire. I don't want to be in there. It sounds uncomfortable. <laughs> but anyway, let's go to the next question. I think the most common question we get of all, whenever I look through the comment feeds and people send it into my email, is this. If William Branham was not the prophet for our age, then who is? So, John, this is a question that gets into, we might say, theology or the Bible a bit. So I'm going to be careful in how I answer this question here. Um, but I, I would suggest, you know, the premise of that question is itself flawed. <laughs> All right. So you, you're, that, that's, that question is, where do we go from here? If William Brandon wasn't the prophet for the age, who is? That tells me you're looking for a new cult leader. <laughs> that's, that question tells me you're looking for someone to replace William Branham as your cult leader. Um, not a good idea. Not a good idea. Okay. So you need to just step back and ask, why are you even asking that question? Why do you think there is such a thing as a prophet to this age? Who who told you there's such a thing as a prophet to this age, right? Was it by chance the man who thought he was the prophet to this age, right? I mean, you got to examine why do you even believe in that? 
And I would suggest to you, if you're in the message, the only reason you believe there's a prophet to this age is because the man claiming to be the prophet to this age told you there was. The only reason you believe there is a seventh church age messenger is because the man claiming to be the seventh church age messenger told you there was such a thing, right? You don't believe these things because you opened up the Bible and read them out of the Bible. You believe these things because the man claiming to be all these things told you there was such a thing to begin with, right? Um, and before you decide to go out and look for someone to fill William Branham's shoes as your next cult leader, I would suggest to you, you might want to go back and actually re-examine and be sure that you should even believe in such a thing as that to begin with, right? And until you're willing to do that, I, I certainly would not in any way, shape, or form be pointing to you towards a new prophet for you to follow. Um, and that would be uh, my most immediate advice on this question. The first time I had this question, <clears throat> somebody asked it, and, you know, this is usually coming from a person who's in the cult, and what they're trying to say is just like you said. If we're not following this cult leader, then tell me who is the correct cult leader <laughs> to follow. Generally, they follow this up with, you're working with the Catholic Church. The Pope is your prophet for the age. And they're, like you said, it's flawed, but there are a few flaws here. There are people who have left the cult who are in our support groups, and they're—I've actually heard recordings of this. Their ministers will say, you're following Charles or you're following John as the new prophet. Well, we've never had a prophecy, Charles, <laughs> so we, we can't be a prophet. <clears throat> but even deeper than that, prophet for the age. I never will forget the first person that asked this. I said, well, are you certain that there are church ages? And they said, absolutely, it's in the book of Revelation. I said, well, show me, the, uh, show me the verse for that. And they go look, and all they find are seven churches. They don't find seven church ages. And they said, something's wrong. I, I know that this says age in here. I said, well, show me where. And they look, and they look, and <clears throat> ended up, you know, it's, it's obviously not there because that is extra biblical. It's <laughs> the dispensationalist theology. <clears throat> so... What ended up with is they begin to attack my person. Because they can't defend what they believe, they resort to attacking the person. And that's the point in which I just cut it off because I won't, once it gets to that level, I don't engage because I can't help them. But like you said, the premise is false. It is looking for another cult leader, but generally, it's usually a weapon to attack. So when you see that in the comment feeds, it's because they want to say that we're following the Catholic Church or uh, in the words of some, some of the comment, <laughs> the people who are commenting, they say, John is paid by the Pope. <laughs> and that's, uh, I wish I was paid by the Pope. I, I don't wish that I would follow the Pope's agenda, but I'd love to have some money, but we don't get any money from the Pope. <laughs> I'll, I'll tack on one more thing, you know, because the first part of that question, you know, was where do we go from here? Um, you know, it, I would say this. If you if you want to continue to be a Christian, where you go from here is Jesus Christ. I mean, that really is the answer. Don't go find a new cult leader. Go find Jesus, for goodness sakes. I mean, that's the answer. And that's the problem that got you in this pickle to begin with is because you let somebody usurp the role of savior in your life. Instead of depending on Jesus to save you, you're dependent on William Branham's shout to save you, or you're dependent on William Branham's message to save you, or this, that, or the other from the message to save you, rather than dependent on, 
I don't know, what a, what a, what a novel idea. Let's depend on the Savior to actually save us, right? I mean, <laughs> Christianity 101, how about go back to the basics and, and start believing in the Savior is actually going to save you, and then go from there. That would be That would be my most important instruction. That is what I have tried my best to do. Now, I am most formerly a cult preacher, so hey, maybe I'm crazy. So <laughs> don't even just take it because I said it. If you, But that would be my suggestion to you is um, go get the basics of the gospel right and start, go back and actually believe the Savior saves you and then go from there. So that brings us to our last question, John, that we have. Um, that we're going to try and fit in today. There's so many more questions, John. We're already over, I think, three <laughs> hours of recording questions. So the question is, how far do we want to go with this? I think we're going to maybe cap it off here. Um, but hey, if you, if you guys got more questions and want to send them in, go ahead. Maybe one day we'll do another Q&A episode. Um, but um, here's the final question. Is the message a Christian religion? Wow, that's a, <clears throat> that's a tough one to answer, Charles. My... My response for this would be, what is the message? In your sect, Charles, if I ask you what is the message, you're going to be, give me a different answer than in, in the main sect. <clears throat> what is the message? I can assure you if I go to the West Coast and I ask a church what is the message, they're going to give me a different answer as to the East Coast, what is the message. There are no two churches, sometimes even within the same city, who have the same views on what was the quote-unquote message. I've actually heard ministers say the message is that Christ is returning and God has called a people. Well, that's a Christian notion, man. If that's the, Christian, if that's the message, <laughs> that's the Christian message. I've also heard some say that God has called a prophet to condemn the world to hell and to condemn the Christians who did not accept the prophet as their ticket to heaven, you know, they use other verbiage, as their ticket to heaven, God sent this message to condemn those to hell. Well, that's the anti-Christian message. So if you ask, is it a Christian religion? Well, what's the religion is my second question. First, what's the message? But second, well, what's the religion? <laughs> it's different. You don't find any agreement or coherent thought. And I always go back to the verse, God is not the author of confusion. When you examine the religion, it is a religion of confusion. When you examine any doctrine and you go study, we've got the resources to study what the man said. Was he a Trinitarian? He said, I accept the Holy Trinity. He Specifically, I accept the third person in the Trinity. So any group who forms off of William Branham's theology of accepting the third person of the Trinity is going to oppose those who say anybody who accepts the persons of the Trinity are condemned to hell. They've chosen the mark of the beast. Well, that's their message. That's their religion. William Branham said both. So which is it? Is he Trinitarian? Is he anti-Trinitarian? What is the message? What is Christianity? The problem for me is that this is deeper than just the message. This We mentioned this, I think, in the first series of questions that we answered, but this was a plague that infected the Christian church, and it was a movement that transformed 
what it meant to be Christian to a general public audience, many of those men who left this, knowing that it was heresy, they got into positions and they were influenced, so they began to influence denominations. So this was a cancer that spread throughout American Christianity. It changed the view of what is the church. The church is the people. If you read the Bible, the church is the people. But in the message, they think the church is the message people or the message denomination of faith, but they'll say we're not a denomination. (laughs) Everybody's welcome, but everybody's not welcome. So for me, the answer is this simple. If you are in a movement that believes simply the Christian gospel and you follow the words of Christ and you don't put any power in a human being as your mediator between God and man, then you're in a Christian religion. Can you say that about any message sect? I haven't seen one. Now, they may exist. I haven't seen one that's like this. Almost everyone that I've been to, you have to accept William Branham in one shape or one way, shape, or form as your mediator between God and man. Yeah, so is the message a Christian religion? I mean, it is a loaded question, like you said, John, and it is because that is so hard to answer because even within the same sect, two churches will define the message differently. And you have on you have on one end of the spectrum message churches that are, you know, not very different than vanilla Pentecostalism. And, you know, I, I believe that Pentecostals in general are Christians, right? So I, mean, I would say that on that end of the spectrum, sure, the message believers are Christians. Um, but then you get to the other end of the spectrum where they baptize and pray in the name of William Branham. Um, and no, they are not Christians, right? There's, there's definitely full-in idolatry on a false god. And so you have the spectrum from one end to the other, and at a certain point in that spectrum, you cross the line where William Branham is usurping uh, the role of Savior, the role of Holy Spirit, you know, the role of God. And at a certain point, you go so far down that line, and you got to say, I don't think these guys are Christians anymore, right? Um, You know, when William Branham has entered your... um, formula for salvation no you're not christians anymore right when when um you know the holy spirit is no longer guiding your life but something else you know the message preacher has entirely usurped the role of holy spirit guiding your life are you christian anymore i don't i don't know maybe um you you things start to get fuzzy right so is some is some of our people in the message christian sure lots and lots of people in the mes- message are true genuine christians um, and then also lots and lots of people in the message are idolaters of the worst sort and actually worship a false god. And, you know, I, I would not want to paint any, uh, paint with too broad of a brush. I think that generally it's not up to you and I to judge people's hearts and souls as individuals. That's up to God, right? Uh, but we can say the message leans towards um, an idolization of William Branham. Even the sects that would not present themselves in that way, there is some role that belongs to God that they have definitely given over to William Branham or to their present leadership slash ministry um, standing in the role of God. Um, that is 
depending on which group it is, is how problematic it is. So, is it a Christian religion? Um, it depends. It depends. So, I think that is the last question we're going to try and tackle here, John. Um, it's been great answering everybody's questions. I, I feel like I've, we've got to the most pressing ones, that, and I've been collecting these for a while. Um, some of these come from just all over the world, some of these questions from our different friends and listeners. And so it's been really great um, interacting with the audience. So, um, it, like I said before, if you got any more, go ahead, send them in. Um, maybe we'll do another QA episode or maybe uh, nothing else. I can just maybe point you to uh, places where we've answered the questions before. Well, Charles, this has been quite an adventure, start to finish, from episode one to, <clears throat> I think I said it wrong <laughs> in our in our finale, I think I said 160-something, but I think it's 60-something that we've done. It feels like 160-something, but um, it's been quite an adventure, and this episode has been, if you know my voice, uh, I get really hoarse, so <laughs> this is quite an adventure, and I am a poster child for Luden's Cough Drops, because you talk too much and we will help you talk more <laughs> it's uh it's gotten me through the episode i did not think i would have a voice when we got done we're at what is it three and a half almost four hours <laughs> we've recorded but um this is uh as we mentioned in the finale this is the final after finale episode of q a that we did promise you and we're taking a break um, these episodes, we're, we're going to split them up and they'll go out for a few weeks. But Charles and I are going to be taking some much-needed R&R. And I hope Charles comes back. I would love it if everybody would write into Charles and tell him how much you enjoyed Charles on this episode uh, that we've done for this uh, 60-something series on William Branham. Um, I'm getting really excited about the stuff that is upcoming, and um, I'm trying to talk him from my side as well, because I want to get into the sinister history that is even darker than William Branham, that was the foundation that William Branham built his ministry upon. Once we discovered this, I started, I started digging, and I'm aching for more. I want to know why. I want to know how. How did these men do this? Why did they cover it up? So please write into Charles, tell him you enjoyed the, the work on the podcast. You can write him at christiangospelchurch.org on the, con, on the contact page. Uh, if you want to write in to thank me, it's william-branham.org. Write me on the contact page, and we would love to hear from you. Send us your questions if you have more. Hopefully we'll get a chance to do another Q&A. But as for now... We are signing off and we're taking a much needed vacation from it. 